Learn about a new treatment for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis from expert voices in dermatology. Go to perspectivesinpsoriasis.com. That's P-E-E-R perspectivesinpsoriasis.com. You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim Del Rosso from Las Vegas, Nevada, and I'm going to be talking to someone that brings me back to the early 1990s when I first met him, when we met at a meeting talking about antifungal therapy and onychomycosis. It's been some time, and that's Dr. Ted Rosen, and, and anybody who doesn't know Uncle Teddy, I'm not sure what planet you're on, but anyway, <laughs> uh, Ted is Professor and Vice Chair at Baylor College of Medicine Dermatology and he's Chief of Dermatology at the VA Hospital in Houston. You've been at this position for quite some time, right, Ted? Uh, 40 years. 40 years, so quite a, quite a bit of experience. So, so Ted, we're going to be talking today about you know, anti-IL-17, primarily as it relates to, or IL-17, the cytokine, uh, as it relates to psoriasis. But we also know that diseases don't own cytokines, that cytokines play a role in, in many situations. They have normal physiologic function, but when there's dysregulation, they contribute to disease. And hydratinitis suppurativa and some other ones have been identified with uh, with IL-17. But, you know, one of the things that, that I've heard a lot of people say is that we have gotten so good with our psoriasis treatments, especially some of the newer biologics, do we really need anything else? Uh, we're pretty much where we want to be. Could anything else be an improvement? And, and the issue I have with that is we're not getting everybody to pass E100 and keeping them there, but what's your feeling about that when you hear that from people? Well, I think we have a nice library uh, with different mechanisms of action, TNFs, IL-12, 23, 23, IL-17, you know, it, it's nice to have multiple drugs because no drug is 100% POSI-100. I think some of the more new agents are getting close. Certainly, if you look at POSI-90, uh, we can get pretty close to that and we have good persistence of effect. But there's always someone who's going to need a different MOA in order to get them well. And the other thing is, even though we have pretty good persistence, you have people who do great on any given drug. And after a long enough time period, for whatever reason it is, their disease starts to come back. And it probably is good to have a different mechanism of action to use on them too. So, I think the more the merrier. Give us choices and let us use them as we need them. Yeah, I, I agree. I like when there's a lot of choices on the menu. Um, and it, there's some evidence. I remember I was with uh, talking with Jen Cather. There's some evidence that the individual's transcriptome can actually change over time and the patterns of their response to different treatments might change. So it, that might explain why we see some differences. But I have some questions for you. Um, because you're a lot smarter than I am. You always have been. I always learn some stuff from you. Um, but anyway, um, 
Among the several advances we've had with biologic agents for psoriasis, agents that inhibit IL-17 have been major breakthroughs. And we're very happy that we now have a new agent, bimekizumab, just recently FDA approved that inhibits IL-17A and IL-17F. Well, I think this. I think we have primarily had IL-17A blockers in the past. Uh, Bradalumab's a little more broad spectrum because it's the IL-17 receptor rather than entrapping the cytokine itself. But we've had mostly IL-17A, and they're good. I'm not going to complain about them, but I do believe that IL-17F can contribute by itself. And I think we have to remember that, like you mentioned, there are physiologic purposes for these things. And one of the ways the IL-17s work is they can dimerize. So you can have two IL-17As, two IL-17Fs, and you can have IL-17A and F. And all of those have, when they're in excess, may have deleterious effects. So I think that by blocking the F version along with the A version, that we'll probably have, and I think this is borne out by randomized clinical trials, will have extended efficacy. It's not that the other agents aren't good. It's that we can take a good thing and make it better. I, I think that's a Beatles song, but at any rate, that's my point. We'll, we'll have a we'll, we'll we'll start singing "Hey IL Seventeen instead of <laughs> "Hey Jude," right? Right. But you know, th- th- one of the things that I've also had people say to me is that you know when we inhibit IL twenty three, IL twenty three is what stimulates IL seventeen production downstream, and and so why wouldn't just having anti IL Uh, 23, get the job done. But there are other sources of IL-17, like innate uh, lymphoid cells and and other types of T lymphocytes. Not all the IL-17 is dependent on IL-23, correct? Correct. And that's why you need to address the cytokine itself in all its sources. And you know, no inhibition is 100%. So if you're blocking IL-23, you're not blocking all IL-23 either. So because 17 is an important, and it's downstream, it's an important downstream cytokine for things like psoriasis. And uh, I think as we've seen clinically now by trials for hydradenitis, um, you really need to get after it. Right. And, and, and psoriatic arthritis and axial yes. spondylarthropathies. And, and, and I think the list is going to get longer and longer as we learn more. So I, to me, the take-home point here is that by inhibiting IL-17 directly, you're, you're not as concerned about what the source is and only blocking that one source. You're inhibiting it on multiple levels. So, Correct. you know, that, 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 that certainly makes sense. Now, what about this history that anti-IL-17s have of predisposing 
patients, the development of candidiasis. What I've read is usually it might be oral, maybe sometimes superficial mucosal candidiasis. Rarely is it something that's systemic or, or a serious adverse event, though I guess that's possible. What's the story with IL-17 and candida? So as you know, and I think most people identify me with infectious diseases, this was really my major concern. And so I have a couple of points. It's a great question. So yes, it is of concern. However, as has been proven with previous and recently approved IL-17 blockers, blocking IL-17 sufficiently to give you very high for psoriasis, POSI-90 and even POSI-100 numbers, there really is, if any, if any, minuscule risk of candidemia, something that's serious in the bloodstream. And then it is extremely rare to cause cutaneous candida. And then it can, but not quite as often, cause vulvovaginal candidiasis, but what it really tends to cause is thrush, oral mucosal candidiasis. And that's because the actual defense mechanisms we as human beings use is different in these sources. So IL-17 plays a, a very central role in the oral defense against candida. We all carry candida, so we don't get oral candidiasis because IL-17 does its thing. Candida releases a compound called candidolysin, which stimulates IL-17. IL-17 then makes forward chemoattractants, which call in particularly neutrophils and uh, mononuclear cells, and also upregulates uh, certain other molecules like beta defensins. They poke holes in the candida membrane. But in the vulvovaginal tract, it's actually a totally different mechanism where IL-1 beta is the major defense against candida there. And that has very little, if anything, to do with IL-17. So if you look at the numbers from all the randomized controlled trials using IL-17 blockers, most of the problem is going to be thrush. It's not going to be vulvovaginal. It's not going to be cutaneous. And it definitely is not going to be um, systemic candida. And even though it may cause oral candida, it tends not to call, cause candida esophagitis. Okay. Then my next important point is, how do you quantify this? And when you, quant when you try and quantify it, there's an incredibly broad spectrum of risk. And yes, there is a risk. I will not deny that for one second. But let me just give you one example. If you look at the head-to-head -head study of bimikizumab against secukinumab, uh, bimikizumab was responsible for candida infections virtually all in the mouth, a few vulvovaginal, but 21.2%. The risk of candida infections with secukinumab was only 4.6%. But if you look at secukinumab's own phase three randomized control, the critical, the approval studies, 
the risk was 13.5%. So you have wide ranges. So you don't, you're not going to always see this. And when you do, it's going to be mostly oral. Also, my other point is there are other things that make candida infections, whether it's with or without an IL-17 blocker, more likely, right? So if you're going to give an IL-17 blocker, if someone's diabetic, make sure they're in good control. If they drink alcohol, which suppresses the local response, tell them they need to knock off or at least mitigate against that. If they're taking steroids for any reason at all, maybe they have concomitant arthritis, they really should be off the steroids or other immunosuppressives for any other reasons. You know, just get the patient in a mode where they're less likely to have candida and watch out for it and you can treat it. And we can talk about that if you'd like. Ted, I'm going to ask you to hold on for a second because we're going to get a word from our sponsor, but I have some thoughts and questions for you, so hang on. Visit PerspectivesInPsoriasis.com to read about a treatment for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Created in partnership with dermatology experts for dermatology experts, this hub is your one-stop educational platform delivered by respected voices you trust. That's P-E-E-R-SpectivesInPsoriasis.com. So, Ted, I have a question for you. You're in the room with the patient and you're getting ready to write anti-IL-17. Let's say an anti-IL-17A and F both being blocked, where you, you seem to have some increase in the risk of candidiasis. What are you going to tell the patient before you tr- start the treatment? So, uh, as I mentioned, I would just ask about drinking habits and are they taking steroids? So, you know, just are they diabetic? Are those those things I need to mitigate? Then the next thing is I'm going to tell them, advise them that there is a risk of yeast infection. I'm balancing that risk, which is small compared to the likelihood that an IL-17A and F blocker is going to give them substantial relief from their psoriasis. And then I'm going to advise them to call me if any of these things happen, i.e. the symptoms of oropharyngeal candidiasis. If you have a white coating anywhere in your mouth, if you feel any, it's usually sort of stinging, burning. It's not usually pain, but it could be, but stinging or burning any problems at all, even though I don't expect esophageal disease, but any problems at all swallowing. And if it's a female, most women have had at least one episode of vulvovaginal candy. They know what it feels like. And the major symptom is itching down below. So if you feel like you're having a yeast infection, let me know. So I'll warn them about the risk. I'm going to tell them that the benefit far exceeds the risk and then give them some rendition of the symptoms I want them to watch out for. And that's when you holler at me. Sooner the better. And I might just add that in all the IL-17 drugs, all the studies, 
all the candida infections that have been seen have been amenable to therapy. What's been the typical therapy that's been given? So for oral candidiasis, a nystatin suspension, swish and spit, or even swish and swallow doesn't matter four times a day. Uh, there used to be a nystatin pastille it, it dissolved in the mouth, but it's off the market now. Uh, clotrimazole troche, which you just let it dissolve in the mouth five times a day if need be. Usually that takes care of it. And if worse comes to worst, oral fluconazole is still a very good drug. And of course, it's the drug of choice for vulvovaginal candidiasis, a single 150 milligram. And if for some reason, fluconazole doesn't work and the topicals haven't worked, we all should be aware that there are at least two new drugs approved for candida. They don't seem to have penetrated much into the derm market, but there's abrexafungurp and otasiconazole. These are great drugs. Or if you want to use an older drug, posiconazole and even voriconazole should work. But for oropharyngeal disease, most of it responds quite nicely to nystatin suspension or clotrimazole troche. So, Ted, one of the things that really stands out to me when I look at the data on bimicizumab, uh, which there's been a lot collected of both short-term, the pivotal studies up front over 16 weeks looking at PASI reductions and and global assessments, but looking at the longevity of the effect also. But one of the things that really stands out is, first of all, you have a set dose of 320 milligram injection. You don't have to give multiple doses up front and, and load it. You started at 320 milligrams injection every four weeks, and we'll get to maybe adjusting that, even spacing that out. But after one shot, after four weeks, the PASI 75 is about 70 to 75%. Um, and that was higher than when it was compared with some of the other drugs, anti-TNFs. Um, it was compared with adalimumab. It was compared with ustekinumab, 12-23. And it was also compared to, as you mentioned, secukinumab, uh, and was superior, significantly superior to all three of those. But that seems like a very favorable response for just four weeks. Sure. I mean, rapidity of onset's important. It's important for us. It's really important for the patients, of course. But I think you also, you can always tell a patient, look, just bear with me, you know, which I often have to do with the IL-23s. You know, you're, you're going to be okay. You're going to get a response, but it's going to take a little while. And you can usually put the patient at ease in that way, but it's so much more helpful if it works up front. It's also helpful to have a simple dosing regimen. I cannot tell you how many times I've had patients, you know, where you have to do multiple loading doses and they call, is it, how many am I supposed to do again? It doesn't matter. They, they lose it. They forget it. You know, a nice simplified dosing regimen with an early onset of action is optimal. And then if you look at down the road, and you look at years later, you have really unparalleled POSI 90 and POSI 100. And I, I'm not a psoriasis guru, but I think many of them now talk about treat to target, target being clear, 
or pretty darn close to clear, you're not going to get another drug that will get you this far towards clear and keep you there. Yeah, especially looking at the bell curve, you may get some outlier, but looking at the bell curve, uh, uh, this drug has substantial efficacy. But one of the things that was also interesting is looking at getting to week 16, the patients that got to PASI 90, and if you extended it to every eight weeks with that 320 milligram injection, you were able to sustain efficacy very similar than if you continued on every four. So you're now decreasing the amount of injections that the patient's getting. So uh, there's a lot to be learned here. And Jim, there's another important point right there is for all the biologic drugs, and especially for the IL-17s, although this hasn't been explored in depth, it does appear that there's a dose response in terms of candida. So if you give a lower dose by decreasing the frequency of injection, that's a lower dose. You will, in fact, lower your risk, almost certainly, of candida. So I like that option (laughs) very much. So, Ted, I think you answered all the questions that I have and looking forward to seeing you at an upcoming meeting. I know we'll run, definitely run into each other, but I have one important question for you. And what's that? Do you like your matzo balls soft or hard? Oh, my God. I like them soft. If I wanted them hard, I would play softball with them or baseball. No, soft. It's funny because Brad Glick and I agree on soft and Mark Kaufman said hard. And we, we told him if we would have known that, we would have never voted for him to be president of the <laughs> you know, Hard, hard matzo balls. Anyway, oh, no. Ted, it's great to see you. Um, thanks a lot for sharing this information. You always shed light, especially on the infect- infectious disease area. Nobody does it better than Uncle Teddy. You take care. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions, please email us at podcast at dermsquared.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at D-E-R-M-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D.com. Podcast at dermsquared.com. With so much to learn in the field of dermatology about treating moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, we've developed an on-demand resource hub that offers providers like you a collection of relevant educational video content, all delivered by your respected peers. Visit peerspectivesinpsoriasis.com now. That's P-E-E-R-spectivesinpsoriasis.com.